continuing our study of the Ten Commandments. Sorry, I have to end your sweet fellowship time. Next week, Pastor Stewart will be preaching on the Eighth Commandment, on not stealing, and then we'll talk about lying and coveting in the weeks after that. And then the last week will be devoted to a message on how Jesus Christ fulfills these commandments that we've been studying. And that will be December, and we will then be into Advent. And it seems hard to believe that we're already that close. Feels like baseball season just ended, doesn't it? That was my gratuitous remark to congratulate all of you Nats fans from the long-suffering Oriole fan. Congratulations. I know you all had a wonderful time. So we are moving on to the seventh commandment this morning. And um, let's recite these as we've been doing. Uh, we'll start with the, the first one there on the screen. Let's, let's see, say these together. You shall have no... seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. About a year ago, Pew Research Center published results of a study that it had done on views of marriage by millennials. My apologies to you millennials. You get researched for everything and your opinions on, on things. 1981 roughly to 1996, those who were born in that period. This was questions about marriage. And in general, the study found that millennials are marrying later, closer to the age of 30, if at all. Uh, it also showed that a number have shown skepticism towards marriage because they, quote, think lifelong cohabitation may be a more convenient and realistic option than the binding legal and economic ties of marriage. The data is interesting to see what the views are toward marriage, but the, the primary takeaway at the beginning of the, the article that was published on this research said this, for the first time in history, people are experiencing marriage as an option instead of a necessity. It's a fascinating happening and an incredible opportunity for marriage to be redefined and approached with more reverence and mindfulness than ever before. Which seems at least to me almost contradictory that on one level we're going to say that marriage needs to be redefined and that on the other level it is now more revered and, and treated with more mindfulness. It's an interesting conclusion and it's really based on the idea that the researchers were, were cheering, which is this redefinition of marriage by pushing it later and they were making the argument that, that living together unmarried allows people to sort of grow and mature through life and figure out what it is they need and want in marriage. That's sort of being the argument that people walk through sort of serial monogamy until they finally figure out what it is, quote, they are much more aware of what they need to be happy in a relationship, which again fits the cultural norms here, which say it's all about my happiness. It's all about what I get out of this. That, that's, the, that's the focal point. Gallup does an annual polling on, on people's um, moral acceptability scale, and it's not just sex and marriage sort of issues, it's all kinds of issues, but, but just some interesting takeaways from that. They do this every year, they've done it for a while. Every year for the past decade, there has been a majority, and that majority has been growing each time they poll, that say that same-sex marriage and relations are morally acceptable, and that sex outside of marriage is morally acceptable. And while it's still not a majority viewpoint at this time, it continues to grow every year, now up near 40%, that um, sex among those who are under 18 is morally acceptable. 
what's so interesting is you've got this whole chart of ideas that morally acceptable and majority saying it's morally acceptable. At the very bottom of this list of issues that are being polled on, the one that generates a near 90% rate of opposition in terms of being morally acceptable or morally unacceptable, the one that gets 90% that says morally unacceptable is married men and women committing adultery. And so the same culture that overwhelmingly approves the notion that sex is pretty much what you want, when you want, with who you want, whatever pleases you, does have a point at which it says, but not this. There's something, there's something innately wrong at, at this level when it's a married person who is committing adultery. There's, it, what's interesting to me is they, they see it as morally repugnant, but don't really see the inconsistency in the whole package of views in looking at, at sex and marriage. The seventh commandment says you shall not commit adultery. And just as we saw last week, as our culture innately knows that you shall not murder is right. They understand that, that that's there for a reason and they agree with that. It, it appears that our culture also innately knows there's something about adultery that is wrong. There's something troubling about that. And I would submit to you that as believers in Jesus Christ, not only do we know that it's wrong, but we know why it's wrong and we should be able to fill in the information gap on this one to help them understand the need for consistency in their views. We should be able to help them to see why marriage is to be cherished and why adultery is forbidden because we are speaking as and to people who are made in the image of God. Just as we said last week, that, that becomes a, a foundational point as to who we are speaking to, that, that we bring them the truth of God's design for marriage. And so the reason adultery is wrong is because it is a, a violation of marriage, and marriage was created by God. I'm going to focus in on two reasons that I think tie to this seventh commandment. Marriage was created to be a lifelong covenant and a profound object lesson. I'm going to talk about those two things first, that marriage is designed by God to be a lifelong covenant and a profound object lesson. And when we grasp that, then the seventh commandment, we, we understand it within its context a whole lot more clearly. So first, marriage is a lifelong covenant. The Bible's filled with language of covenants. It starts in Genesis chapter 6 when God speaks to Noah and makes a covenant to, to rescue Noah and his family from the judgment that is coming. And then in, in Genesis chapter 9, we know the covenant now extends to all of mankind from that point on. The rainbow is used as the sign of that covenant to say, I will never again destroy the earth with a flood. So if if, if you are not familiar with Genesis chapter 9 and you've seen a great emphasis on the rainbow and its symbolism in our culture, there's where it starts in Genesis 9. God uses it as a sign of his covenant to say that I will never judge the earth again in this particular manner, and I am making a covenant. I am making a vow to you about this. Genesis chapter 17, God makes an everlasting covenant with Abraham. The nature of the covenant is I promise that you will have descendants and I will bless them. It is God vowing to do something. And so the covenant is God making promises. It is God binding himself to be faithful because that is God's character. He is true and he keeps his word. And that's the nature of a covenant. It's not a contract. It's not an arrangement. It's not a business deal. 
It is a, a, a statement of promises, of vows. And so when we talk about the covenant of marriage, when we, we, we celebrate a marriage ceremony, typically it includes the exchange of vows, those statements that say, I love, honor, and cherish you regardless. That, that, that is what I am promising to you. That is what I am committing to you. That's what I'm binding myself to you. In a wedding ceremony, that exchange is, is saying, I will do that all the days of my life. And, and the basis on which I will keep that vow is not my feelings for you, because my feelings for you are, are likely to be all over the map. And, and, and what I'm feeling right here during the wonder of this ceremony, I may not feel three weeks from now when we wake up in the morning. I may not feel exactly the same way, but I still promise to love, honor, and cherish you. They're not based, even those promises, on how you will respond to me, how well you will treat me. The basis on which we make these promises as believers in Jesus Christ is our obedience to the God who designed marriage. We stand before him and we make these vows, asking him to enable us to keep them. Genesis 2.24 is really a foundational verse. We're going to hear it several times today because the New Testament quotes it so frequently on this topic of marriage. Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to, cleave to, the old King James language, cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There is a unique bond between the husband and wife, and it is rooted right here in Scripture in this covenant into which they have entered that, that forms this unique relationship. Malachi speaks to the, the covenant language of that. God is delivering a charge to the people of Judah, and, and as the prophet Malachi is speaking, in Malachi 2.14, he writes, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You see that description now of the, the husband and the wife. She is your companion and wife by covenant. God's charge to the, the men of Judah in particular here in Malachi is you are dealing treacherously with your wives. That's what that word faithless means. It's untrustworthy. It, it is harshly. It is, it is appalling that the one that you are supposed to be closest to in terms of earthly relationship is the one that you are betraying, the one that you are now treating treacherously. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The, the parent-child relationship chronologically is primary. It's the first one we enter into. We learn to honor and respect parents. But the one that God has uniquely designed as the most intimate of human relationships is this one that we enter into with marriage, that between a husband and a wife. And so he says, she is your companion. And the Hebrew word for companion has usage in military context to describe banding together. To, it, it, you, you all who have served in the military certainly understand what that means, that, that idea that I trust these people implicitly. I, I, I know they have my back. Whatever circumstances we walk into, I know that I have these, these companions, this band together. And, and so he says here in marriage, even when others prove untrustworthy, this, this one is to be your companion. Your wife, your husband is to have your back. They are to be there when, when all others may walk away. And so that's what he's condemning is this faithless, treacherous action of the husband here. He says, you are betraying the very one who is your 
companion. In fact, he then says, who is in covenant with you. And he says that, um, that, that the, the covenant of your youth, that this is, this is a companion, not by military assignment or any other means. This is companion that you have covenanted yourself with. You have made promises to this person. And, and so you are now joined in this most intimate of relationships and by God's grace, you are to do everything to protect and defend that bond and nothing that would tear it apart, which is the language that Jesus then brings us in Matthew chapter 19 when he recites Genesis 2.24, again about the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one. And then Jesus says in Matthew 19 verse 6, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate, what we, what we quote almost all the time at weddings, right? That that covenant has been made, and therefore we should not work against that, but adultery is the violating of the covenant of marriage. Adultery is ripping apart that, that covenant. When the word adultery is used by the Old Testament prophets, it usually has one of two meanings. There's the ordinary meaning that we're talking about where it applies to marriage and, and to one spouse having sexual relations outside of the bonds of marriage. And then there's also the usage that we see throughout the prophets of spiritual adultery, where God uses it to help us to see the seriousness of adultery when he charges Israel for going after the gods of other nations, for betraying him and worshiping other gods. And so one example of this is Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 7. God says, how can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? How many of you just thought to yourself, that's in Jeremiah. I didn't realize that particular wording was in there that way. But it is God speaking and it, it, it is God being explicitly clear to the nation of Israel that I, I delivered you, I provided for you, I gave you everything you need, and then you go, and, and as he describes it here, whoring after other gods of other nations. You, you are committing adultery. And, and it, it's important for us to see that, that this covenant breaking is sin before God. It is serious. We must not try to lessen the fact that adultery in marriage is an attack on the covenant that God designed to be lifelong between a husband and a wife. So that's the, the covenant aspect. Second thing, marriage was also designed by God to be a profound and powerful object lesson. I'd like you to turn to Ephesians 5, if you would. Ephesians chapter 5 in the New Testament. Paul is speaking to the, the young believers in Ephesus talking about what it is to live the Christian life, giving them some basic fundamentals of how they are to relate to other people, how they are to speak to other people in chapter four. And then in Ephesians 5, specifically now he takes that to marriage. And Ephesians 5, 22, first addresses wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Interesting that the instruction was not to husbands to exert your headship, to make your headship prominent, but it is rather to wives to say, 
by God's design, this is what, what God has called you to. And so wives are called, the appeal is to them to see the beauty in God's design in the home of the husband and the wife, that God is a God of order. We know from having read in Galatians, when we studied Galatians chapter 3, that, that in Christ there is no male or female, no slave or free, no Jew or Gentile. So, so in Ephesians 5, he is not saying that there is some sort of intrinsic inferiority, one over the other, and that all women must submit to all men. That's not at all what he's saying. He's being very specific here, and he's talking about what we would describe as functional subordination saying that in the role of husbands and wives, there is a place for subordination. Husbands and wives are equal in essence, different in function. The, the model for this that we always think back to is Jesus Christ and God the Father, both fully God, both equal in essence, and yet the one says, I have come to do the will of the other. The son submits to do the will of the father, and then the spirit, of course, is sent by the son. So, we, we talk about this in terms of marriage. Functional subordination is God's design to prevent chaos and rebellion and to establish order, to, to, to bring what, what God desires of orderliness into the marriage. And so God's word says wives are to submit to their husbands. Then verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. If you look at the roles of husband and wife and think that from a biblical point of view, husbands sort of have it easy and it's the wives who really have it hard, then, then you have not grasp what's going on in verses 25 through 28. Not saying that the one is harder or easier, but, but be really clear here that the charge, the command to husbands is to function in marriage like Jesus Christ does with his bride. To love and to cherish and to serve and to sacrifice. The, the preeminent making of that relationship is the, the laying down of his life in sacrifice at the cross to redeem her for himself. And, and Paul now says, the word of God now says, husbands, love your wives just like Christ loves the church. Help them to, to grow, serve them, be sacrificial. We could, we could spend more time on roles of wives and husbands. We'll put a pin in this and save it for another time because we want to stay focused here on this topic of adultery that we're considering. So let's read on. Here's, here's where he gets to the heart of why this is so important, this, these roles and following these. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his, of Christ's body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So first of all, we've got that bringing back again that age-old truth of Genesis 2.24, when he recites again that the husband shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. And then he says... Now, there's this mystery. When the New Testament talks about a mystery, it's talking about something that is part of God's design that is now being revealed. This is the 
the, the moment on the HGTV show when they do the big reveal of the finished product, that's all this is. It's already been done. The work has been done. The mystery has been in existence. But God is saying, I want you to see actually what this means. Here's, here's what it is. And so what he says here is, th this is important. God intends for our marriage to serve as a profound object lesson. The, the importance of these roles, going all the way back to Genesis 2.24 and the two cleaving together as one, is that the manner in which a believing husband and wife function with each other, serving and, and sacrifice and love and, and submission, all of that, that is designed by God to be a picture to the world. It is designed by God to give us sort of a gospel talking point, something that sort of can, can launch into a gospel conversation. To, to put that in today's language then, God intends your marriage to, to be like an Instagram post that somebody looks at and goes, wow, look at that picture. There's, there's so much going on in this picture. This isn't just a couple of people smiling, but there's, there's, there's nature, there's something in here, there's more to it that I wanna understand. There's so much going on here. And that's what he says about marriage. The reason he has given us these roles, the reason that this marriage looks the way it does is because he, he desires that our, our love and service for each other pique the interest of others who look and go, well, that's different. That how they respond to each other is unusual. And it, it opens the way for being able to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not saying that our marriages are perfect, that everything is just spotless and without blemish, and that's what gets the world's attention when they go, those two are perfect. Actually, what they should see is that even in our struggles and even in the, the conflict that is inevitable, even in, in just the day-to-day -day work of, of just loving each other and sacrificing and serving each other, that they still see Christ in the church, that they still see that sense of, of repentance and confession and forgiveness, that ability to, to come together and, and, and even over difficult areas to still find the grace of God and, and, and to confess sin and, and to know the joy of giving and receiving forgiveness. That's what he's called us to, is that our marriage be something so that people see, even when we disagree, they, they still see something different about how we do that and how we reconcile because they're seeing Christ in the church. All right, so let, let's tie this all back to the, the seventh commandment in adultery. Adultery violates God's design for marriage being a lifelong covenant. It betrays that covenant, but it also mars the beauty of what he intends to be on display. Adultery now takes that glorious picture and it does to that picture what Christ would never do to that picture, and that is to turn on the church and to betray the church and what the church is called to, to not do in terms of its, its faithfulness and obedience as we are held to Christ. So God's design for marriage and, and for sexual intimacy is that it be experienced. He has made our bodies and minds to experience sexual intimacy within the bounds of marriage, within the bounds of what God has designed as marriage being between one man and one woman. And within that, he speaks glowingly 
of it in Scripture, of, of what should be experienced. Hebrews 13.4 singles out the marriage bed as the place where sexual intimacy can and should be undefiled, where it should be shared and enjoyed. The, the rest of the verse goes on to say that God will judge those who are sexually immoral and adulterous. 1 Corinthians 7 goes on to, to offer God's instruction here that a husband and wife not deprive each other of intimacy, of sexual intimacy, for the, the, the very understanding that God has made them for each other. And, and your body belongs to your spouse for the pleasure of your spouse. And in fact, he says in that passage that the only exception to that would be for seasons of time, short seasons, very purposeful for the, the worship of God. It is so that the couple can devote themselves in, in prayer and in time with God other than that, he says, that the urging of Scripture is that you come together and not leave room for Satan to tempt. He speaks of in 1 Corinthians 7.5. God designed sexual intimacy for within his design for marriage. And sex outside of marriage is what the Bible prohibits. Our culture would respond to back off, that this is a this is people's private lives. This is a judgment-free zone. This is, this is on the basis of mutual consent and, and what brings pleasure, and, and those are the governing factors. And, and friends, the culture is lying with that message. That is Satan lying with that message because that is not the creator's design. Those sorts of attitudes have been around for millennia and generations have reaped the consequences of exactly those kinds of attitudes. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to counter that by not only reading and believing, but living out what scripture describes as intimacy that is within the bonds, within the boundaries of marriage between a husband and a wife. If you look through scripture, there is a clear awareness in the Bible that this is an area of struggle for man. The Old Testament law is full of specifics on this in terms of sexual sin. The Old Testament narratives are filled with stories that the Judah, David, Solomon, these guys, man after God's own heart, wisest man who ever was, who bring about awful consequences because of sexual desire, who because of sexual sin reap disastrous consequences. Book of Proverbs has all sorts of warnings about a variety of topics, laziness, pride, slander, dishonesty. One sin in Proverbs receives more warnings than any of the others, and it is the sin of marital unfaithfulness. The, the, the father to the son again and again says, this is an area where you must be faithful, son, and, and, and is very frank in his description of the fact that there are all sorts of temptations trying to lure you away from this. You must reject those. Paul's letters, 13, that we ascribe to him, 10 of them contain some reference to God's forbidding sexual immorality. So does Hebrews, we read it. Across the breadth of God's word, it is abundantly clear that sexual sin is a powerful temptation, that it is also destructive in its consequences, and that God's word has established for us a pattern, has called us to live by his grace a certain way. One of those warnings is in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Our, our bodies belong to him. And a couple verses later, it says this. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? And here in 1 Corinthians 6, the kicker is he goes back to again, what verse? Genesis 2.24 and repeats it one more time and says, I'm not saying this just because this is, this is sort of some rule of morality. I'm saying this because of God's design. He says, for as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. And then he commands believers to flee immorality. He says, because this is what God has made. And if you've entered into that covenant of marriage, then, then you are to respect that covenant as God's design. He is the designer and creator of marriage and of sexual intimacy, and he calls us to know and obey his design. Jesus then, of course, makes this unmistakably clear when he explains the seventh commandment in Matthew chapter 5. And essentially what Jesus says to his listeners there in the Sermon on the Mount is, you know this commandment, right? I know you've heard this commandment, you shall not commit adultery. They all nod. Yes, we know this. He says, well, I tell you, if you look on a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery in your heart. And, and, and that's where Jesus then speaks of the, the, the next two images he gives in the context of that sin. He says that, that this adultery being lust he then says, if your right eye offends you, gouge it out, or if your hand offends you, cut it off. Now, he's not talking literally about mutilation or amputation, but what Jesus Christ is saying in that passage is what is consistent with the breadth of Scripture, and that is we need to take radical action in this area. This temptation is powerful, and it is real, and we are called to respond to it in if need be, radical ways to fight this, to flee this temptation. I just want to, in our remaining time, quickly, I'm going to go through four examples. There's others, but four examples of ways that we address this, this area of, of adultery and sexual sin. First one comes out of Romans 13, 14, and it is put on Christ. Put on Christ. The verse says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Frequent New Testament model, put off, put on. Don't stop doing this. Instead, put this in its place. Here he flips it and he says, put on Christ, don't gratify the flesh. The put on here is crucial. And I think it's easy for us to overlook as we get into the make no provision for the flesh part. And, and we skip over what, what's sort of the, the more, at least to our minds, the ambiguous part of put on Christ. But that's the part we need. That's the put on. He's saying, clothe yourself with Christ. How do we clothe ourselves with Christ? We, we meditate on who Christ is. We, we read Christ's words. We, we believe that his grace is sufficient. We cry out to him for help. We worship him both privately and together corporately. We, as believers, gather understanding that this is the body of Christ, and it is here that we find help and, and accountability. We affirm the fact that Christ actually dwells within us by his spirit and his spirit wants to give us power and grace to sustain us through temptation. By, by putting on Christ, we are thinking about, we're not just, we're not putting Christ in a box where it's we take Christ out and put Christ on on Sunday mornings and during our morning devotional times and then the rest of the time it's, it's I just put on me. It is putting Christ over my desires and my thoughts and my actions and, and, and thinking what Christ would have me do and how I would respond and speak and knowing his truth. Because it, it, frankly, as we've walked through all of these commands, it, it, it is, they are convicting, but it is 
It, it is much more, we are much more susceptible to them when we are not putting on Christ. When we are not meditating on who our Savior is, when we are not glorying in the gospel, when we are not reciting these things back to us, we are more susceptible to the fleeting pleasures of the world. And, and they do not satisfy like Christ. And so he says, put on Christ, make no provision for the flesh. Secondly, watch what you watch. Job says this, Job 31, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How could I then gaze at a virgin? Job is speaking here, making a vow to not let his eyes linger. He's talking here in terms of desiring, to allow that, that look to become more than a look. This is not a call for the, the sort of monk's view of you know, putting on blinders, or even there's been Orthodox Jews who, who have the, the old stories of sort of walking into walls because there's a, a woman and they have to turn the other way quickly and, and can't possibly look at her. It's not saying you can't look at a woman. It's saying the, the issue Job is concerned with here is disciplining himself against the look that becomes desire and not allowing himself to linger in that way. Psalm 101.3 says, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. This is the, this is the practical ap application of making no provision for the flesh. It is, do I need accountability software? Do I need to make a commitment that any screen I'm on will be in the view of other people? Do I not subscribe to that movie channel? It is taking the physical action to say, I'm not going to put this stuff in front of me. I'm not going to scheme for ways to get access to stuff in secret that's going to then drag me into sexual sin. So put on Christ, watch what you watch. The third one is let purity rule. 1 Timothy 5, Paul giving young Timothy some practical advice for how he is to minister within the body. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. The, the instructions here are specifically talking about dealing with life in the local church, but the, the importance of applying the principle here broadly is crucial. If we are to treat people of the opposite sex the way that God has designed us to treat them, then we are to look at them as family members, to honor and, and to respect as we would a mother or sister, a brother, a father. We are to relate to that person, speak to that person, Think about that person, look at that person with the same sense of purity and dignity that we would ascribe to a sibling or to a parent. Anything other than that should catch us at that moment as to how we are thinking about that person. Paul ended that verse, verse two, with the words, with all purity. One, one commentator substitutes the word absolute for all, and he writes this, all purity can be taken to mean as much as possible to the greatest extent Timothy can manage. It's, it's all purity. It is, it is to be our guiding rule, not putting ourselves in compromising situations, not giving room for the flesh to where we can get ourselves in, in, into things that we are scheming about doing, not using our words, not using our appearance to tempt others away from purity, fleeing situations where the temptation to impurity is great. Put on Christ, watch what you watch, let purity rule, and the last one is cultivate intimacy in marriage. I changed that one from the notes in your insert. I think I said about cultivating a biblical marriage. I, I wanna be clear. There's a lot more to a biblical marriage. There is praying together, 
There is communicating well. There is resolving conflict together. There is edifying each other. But I want to just focus in for the sake of this on one particular area, and that is cultivating intimacy in that marriage. This is probably a whole nother sermon that we could spend time on and, and talk about. But I, uh, I had a professor in seminary who he and his wife annually would take the Song of Solomon and slowly over a period of days, read it out loud together and enjoy the Song of Solomon. And he made that a challenge to, to us as seminary students and said, you should do the same. We should do this as believers if you are a married couple. Song of Solomon is, is the Bible's closest thing to a romance novel, except that it is God's perfect design of the sort of pleasure and intimacy God has designed to be in marriage. Song of Solomon is the the, the, the rebuke to the, one of the areas where some of our, our forefathers in the faith, some of the Puritans sort of struggled in some of these areas. Song of Solomon comes along and says, no, within marriage, there is to be joyous, pleasurable intimacy. Passion is to be fostered and not squelched. And that happens when a husband and wife are focused on loving and serving each other. First Corinthians 7, again, just reaffirms this, where the husband and wife, again, are commanded to cultivate intimacy and to make that an important part of the marriage. We've covered a lot of ground. I want to end with a verse back in Malachi. When we go through the law, I've been so appreciative of the feedback that I've gotten from people in going through this, but one of the reality is, is as we walk through the law, the law is designed, as we said at the very beginning, to expose us and to show us as guilty. And so one of the things that I would hope you've experienced, because it's the power of the word, I know I've experienced, is it should be evident as we go through these Ten Commandments that we are, we are lawbreakers. But for the grace of God, we, we struggle in these areas. And, and these commandments expose that. Some of you have been through the, the sorrow of divorce, or your marriage has endured the pain of adultery. You may have been the innocent victim in that of, of a spouse's abandonment or adultery, or you may have been the adulterer or the one who sought the divorce, the one whose sexual sin has attacked at the covenant of marriage. If that's you, then I want to keep bringing you back to the gospel and the grace and forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ. We read in Malachi 2 that, that condemning passage of how you are, he says to them, and you are dealing treacherously with, with that companion, with the, the wife of your, the covenant of your youth. How, how do you do that? Well, that's, that's in a list of all of these things that God is judging there in Malachi, all of these words of warning and condemnation. But all of those bring us to the, the first command as you walk through the list of things God is condemning in the balance of Malachi 2 and into chapter 3, the first imperative you come to is in Malachi 3, verse 7. You know what it is? God says, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The God who says, here is the standard, and here is holiness, and you are breaking it, and you need to stop breaking this standard, is also the God who doesn't simply say, you are breaking this, therefore I want nothing to do with you. You are breaking this, therefore it's over. He is the God who, after saying all this, then says, return to me. That is the grace of God to appeal to you and I as sinners 
who are, who are, are, are so drawn to temptation, it is the, the grace of God to say, I know that you've disobeyed my statutes. I want you to return to me. I want you to return. That, that Hebrew word for return is where we get repentance from. It, it is the idea of turning. It, it, it is the, the very basic principle of repentance is saying, I have been walking, thinking, acting, speaking, whatever it is in this direction, and God, it is wrong. If it's my spouse I have offended, I, I have offended you. I have, I, my, to my spouse, it is you I have sinned against as well. I have sinned against God. I have violated our covenant. It is admitting that you are wrong and turning back to God and saying, I need grace. I need forgiveness. I acknowledge God's antidote for his people is to turn around. It is to say, I am wrong. I have been turning in the wrong direction. I've been walking in the wrong direction and I am turning to you for forgiveness and for grace. And, and it is there that we find the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just for that first turn of repentance, but for our walk as believers in Jesus Christ. To go back to the fact that we are sustained and we are kept, just what we were singing about before, how he keeps us. We are sustained and kept by a gracious God who holds out the gospel to us and he says, return. The, the, the beauty of what should mark Christian marriages that's different from marriages of the world both sides mess up, both sides argue, both sides have their problems, both sides each get on the other's nerves and do things wrong. The, the world struggles with the I was wrong part because what do you do with that then? I, I try to fix it in some way, but the world struggles with the pride and, and would rather say, well, yeah, you were wrong, actually. It's, it's your fault and you just need to admit that. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are in this sweet place of knowing that if we will say, Lord, forgive me. I was so wrong in this and what I thought and what I desired and what I said that, that, that we can be different. We have the opportunity by the grace of God to live differently and to experience what those who are apart from Christ cannot know and that is the joy of sweet forgiveness from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you as people who, apart from Jesus Christ, apart from the gospel, are a, a broken people, caught in sin, dead in sin, enslaved to sin, and desperately in need of release and life and forgiveness. And so, Father, we here this morning who are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, we come to you with the, the most thankful of hearts, we are full of gratitude that you have rescued us, that we have, we have defiled your law, we have mocked its holiness, and yet out of mercy and kindness you have you've chosen to rescue us from our sin. And then, <laughs> to have all the sweet things to make us to be the bride of Jesus Christ that your church is described in scripture as this, this bride that Christ is preparing and maturing and, and equipping for that day when, when we will stand before you, the holy God of the universe, spotless and without blemish, presented as a, 
as a treasure of the groom to the God of the universe. What a remarkable work of your grace. We, uh, we thank you for saving us. We thank you for the work of your spirit, your Holy Spirit, to convict us, to call us when we are moving toward temptation instead of fleeing it. When we are trying to set before our eyes things we should not. When we are somehow approving of longings in our heart that are going in directions other than what you have given in Scripture and are moving us towards sin. We thank you for the kind work of your Spirit and your Word to bring us conviction and truth. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's not trusting in Jesus Christ, then, Lord, I, I pray again, as with all of these commandments, that this would not be perceived as some pathway to righteousness, that by determining to obey these rules, these commands, that one would somehow find that that would get them approved before you. We know that's not the case because we're all guilty. And I pray that you would cause them to see that it is only through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the place of sinners, the taking of your wrath, your just wrath, that we find forgiveness in Christ. And Father, I pray lastly that you would be at work in the marriages, both the ones that are here at this church and the ones that are to come in years to come, for those who are, who are single and who are um, waiting on your bringing of a, of a spouse, a companion for them. Lord, I pray for the marriages here, the ones to come, that, that we as a church would glorify you by how we live as a people who are humbled before you, giving forgiveness freely, showing love sacrificially, serving, seeing marriage is not what I can get out of it, but how I can honor my great God by serving the person that he has brought into my life. Thank you for your kind gifts to us and for the work of your son in our place. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.